0: Today on Something You Should Know, is Wikipedia really a reliable source of information? We'll explore that, then everyone lies. So how do you get someone to stop lying and tell you the truth? The best
1: way to get to the truth is to have incredible rapport and to be enormously warm towards somebody, be truly curious, do not judge them, assume they have a reason for doing what they may have done, because everyone has a reason they did something and it's usually pretty interesting.
0: Also today, if a store has a sign that says, you break it, you bought it, do you really have to buy it? And the world is getting louder, and all that loud noise is taking a real toll on you.
2: Whenever you come home from a concert or a bar and you have that ringing in your ears, at that point you basically know that you have done damage to your auditory system, and that damage, as we know now, is likely
0: permanent. All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, Welcome to Something You Should Know. If you have school-aged children, as I do, maybe this has happened to you as it has happened to me, or they come home and they have a paper to write or a project to do, and somewhere in the instructions from the teacher is, but you can't use Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a good source to use for this particular paper or project, and i I've always thought, well, why is that? What is it because Wikipedia is so inaccurate or so unreliable that it's not a good source? Or is it because Wikipedia is so good, it's so accurate, that if you use Wikipedia, well, there's your paper, there's your project, all done. So I did a little research, and it turns out that Wikipedia is pretty accurate. They have software that can detect what are called acts of article vandalism, which is where people go in and deliberately mess up or try to delete content from an article. Errors like that are fixed anywhere from between a few minutes to several hours. There have been several studies made to confirm the accuracy of Wikipedia, and overall, it gets very high marks. There are over 73,000 active Wikipedia editors, and there are over 1.8 edits done per second on Wikipedia, performed by those editors who are all over the world. Currently, the English version of Wikipedia includes 5,967,980 articles or so, and it averages 589 new articles per day. 500 million people use Wikipedia in a month, viewing 18 billion total monthly page views. And that is something you should know. People lie. Everybody lies. Sometimes we do it to spare someone's feelings or to avoid a confrontation. Sometimes we lie to purposely deceive someone. There are all kinds of lies, many relatively harmless and many not. But wouldn't it be good to know when someone is telling you a really big, juicy lie... Pamela Myers is someone who understands lying a lot. She's a leading expert on deception, and she has a great TED Talk online about lying. She's also author of a book called Lie Spotting. Hi, Pamela. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: So, since everybody lies, and everybody knows that everybody else lies, why? Why do we lie?
1: Because we're human, and life is complicated, and it's hard to navigate a world where we'd be completely honest. So I'm not actually that concerned about what we call low stakes lies, white lies, like, honey, you don't look fat in that, you know, which we all say to someone most mornings or, you know, oh, I just fished that email out of my spam filter. We, we navigate the world with a lot of white lies really for social dignity. And my bigger concern is really about high stakes lies, who to vote for, who to hire, who to marry, what house to buy, what car to buy, what company to buy. Decisions that might really punctuate the course of our life can be plagued by deception. And so I like to focus more, even though we are all liars a little bit, I like to focus more on helping people navigate situations where they really could be taken advantage of.
0: Over the course of time, I have interviewed a lot of people on this and related topics, and one of the things that almost everyone or everyone says, and I don't know if you say this, is you can't tell too much about one behavior, that it's a pattern more than it is, uh, he put his finger on his ear, so he's a liar. It's more of a pattern compared to a baseline.
1: Well, you know, Mike, I go even further than that. I mean, I, I feel so strongly that we have to consider this almost like the weather and not decisive. So, for example, what I, when we do training, we do two- and three-day workshops and we train people all over the world. We work with you know government, industry, all kinds of organizations. We teach them to spot clusters of deception, whether it's on the verbal or the nonverbal side. And we will say, if you don't have a cluster, two or three indicators on the verbal side, two or three indicators on the nonverbal side, you have nothing to go on. But we also go further and we say, you know what? Even if you've got those clusters, all that really is, is a red flag to tell you where to dig deeper and find facts to confirm it. So we're, we're real sticklers on facts. We never go just on deception detection. We always back up with deep research
0: since we know that we all lie, since people lie to each other all the time, why do we need to pull the covers off this? Why do we need to dig into this? If, if, I, if you lie to me and I find out you lie, and it upsets me enough that I don't want to hang out with you anymore, well, that's it. So why, why do we need to dig deep into this?
1: Well, so for two reasons. One, life is rarely like that. It's rarely like, are you lying or aren't you, red light, green light... It's usually the messy middle that we're after, like what really happened when a particular company lost 30% of their assets in one quarter, or what really happened when someone shifted jobs and you're now hiring them. What really happened when you're on a first date with someone who, I don't know, they were on that online service for a while, then they were off, and now they're back on – you don't, you don't necessarily just want to know if they're lying. You want to get to the truth. You want to understand the nuances and the subtleties of what's going on. And so when we train people on detecting deception, what we tell them is, you know what? Knowing someone lied, you're right. If they've lied about something significant, weed the garden and move on and just say, you're a big liar and I'm not going to have you in my life. But for the most part, the people that we work with and the people that are in our lives can be somewhat deceptive and it's subtle. And we train people as well on getting to the truth.
0: So help help me get to the truth. What am I looking for? Why and, and when do I even put my radar up?
1: So I mean, we'll talk about how to put your radar up in a minute, but let me just say that if you're trying to, and we call this eliciting information, if you're trying to get to the truth, the first thing you want to do is turn off your television, because it is nothing like the TV show Law and Order, where you're hovering over somebody, sweating and yelling at them, where were you on Sunday, September 23rd? It doesn't work that way at all. The best way to get to the truth is to have incredible rapport and to be Enormously warm towards somebody, charming towards them. Be truly curious. Do not judge them. Assume they have a reason for doing what they may have done, and keep that curiosity hat on because everyone has a reason they did something, and it's usually pretty interesting. So the first thing you want to do is get your mindset in the right place. Second thing you want to do is start with very open-ended questions. If you're going to ask somebody about something really delicate that happened, and we we oftentimes in our fraud investigation business, we call that the main event. You know, if somebody didn't show up at home, or a car went missing, or you think someone cheated on you, or that main event, you're not going to ask about that for a long time. First, you're going to start open-ended, almost like a funnel, and then you're going to narrow it down piece by piece while you have increased your rapport with somebody. And when you really feel like you've got a flow going with them, And you've asked them a lot of questions, and they're starting to talk, and they feel like they can trust you. Then you can start to ask those harder questions about the facts that are going to be a little bit more difficult for them to come forth with.
0: So can you run us through an example of of that? You've described it well, but now can we put some words to that and, and see what that sounds like?
1: Sure. So let's say you're going on a date with someone, and you suspect that they're divorced, but they never told you. And they presented themselves as single and you're trying to get to the truth on that. You're not going to say, hey, tell me your relationship history. You're going to say, so, hey, how was your summer last summer? What were you up to? Who were you hanging out with? What kind of people do you like? You're going to sort of dance around it, get them talking, have a sense of what they're like. And... Ask them, I mean, one of my favorite questions to ask somebody is to say, what's the pettiest thing? Like, I ask my husband this a lot at the end of the weekend. What's the pettiest thing that bothered you at the end of the weekend? What's the pettiest thing that bothered you about the relationship that you just told me you were in? And when you say that, when you say, what's the pettiest thing that bothered you about your past relationships, for example, in an open-ended way? They're going to tell you something not so petty because you're signaling to them, hey, I'm not going to judge you. You can tell me anything. So oftentimes we minimize what could be actually something significant that someone's going to tell you as a way to get them to feel comfortable and come forth. Or we oftentimes we say things like, hey, is there anything else you want to tell me about that? And oftentimes people will. They will come forth with very important information. Or you can say, hey, how do you feel about that? At very, very open. We never say, for example, why you know, why did you do that? Because when you ask the question why, you instantly put somebody on the defensive. We'll say, huh, what made you move to another city? Now, maybe you think that person moved to another city because they were getting divorced and they didn't tell you in that particular example. You're not going to say, hey, did you get divorced? Is that why you left? You're going to say, huh, what made you change cities? That's really interesting. And you just stay curious and you stay in that mindset of, help me understand I'm on the same side as you. And oftentimes they will come forth. The minute you've signal you're on the other side you need to know why you want to get the you want to get the goods you're going to lose their trust and they're not going to feel like they have any reason or any incentive to cooperate or to give you information that you may really need
0: well that divorce thing is a good example of if if you suspect somebody's divorced and they're not telling you you're you're probably right you obviously have some other information that where you got that you must have a sense of that. And so maybe you maybe you don't need to ask this person. You, you could find that out elsewhere and then just move on.
1: Exactly. That's. I mean, we call that, I mean, technically in uh, the lie detection business, we call that profiling. You know, before you even go into an interview with somebody, and of course you wouldn't do this on a date necessarily, but everybody does kind of Google stalk people. But in a, in a more formal environment, when we profile somebody, we look at everything in their background. We think through what we call their blame pattern. So when they're upset, do they blame the spouse? Do they blame the company? Do they blame the economy? Do they blame the president? Like, who do they tend to externalize toward? Uh, And then as we profile them, when we then go in to ask them questions, we then use what we think might be going on inside their internal monologue to try to get them to talk. We'll say, oh, everyone hates the boss. Everyone knows the boss is on the take. We'll say things like that just to get them to look up and kind of start to tell us what might be going on inside their interior world. That's the best way to get to the truth is to think through who the person is across the table from you to be very, very prepared and to give them the benefit of the doubt, to be curious and to think about What is the story they may tell themselves about why they did something that may not be too savory or about why they made decisions they made that they may not want to come forth with? And really not to morally judge. We always say pursue facts, not people.
0: And when you're doing all this, when you're asking all these open-ended questions and being curious, what is it you're looking for? What's the aha moment? Because it would seem that, that a person who is lying is going to continue to try to perpetuate the lie, So what am I, as a questioner, looking for to determine that?
1: Well, first of all, if someone's lying, they are not necessarily going to try to perpetuate the lie. Many people just want to unburden themselves. It's it's, it's enormously hard on cognition to perpetuate a lie. We call this cognitive load. You know, when you're trying to think what to say, act composed, appear spontaneous, that's a lot of processing power. And that's a lot of guilt that people carry around. So oftentimes, if they feel they can unburden themselves, they will. So sometimes you can just offer somebody that off-ramp, and they will take it. Now, if you're trying to figure out if someone's lying and trying to observe and look for those verbal and nonverbal indicators of deceit, oftentimes what we do is we do raise the cognitive load subtly in the questions that we ask, because what we're looking for when you raise the cognitive load and you make it a little bit harder for them to answer the question just a bit you can see these verbal and nonverbal indicators start to leak out.
0: And they look like what?
1: Well, on the verbal side, like let's say you're you're looking at the words and not the body language and you're asking somebody some questions. First of all, somebody may stall for time. They may do what we call questioning the question just to stall for time. Like they'll repeat the question over and over again. Or we sometimes we hear like distancing language like Bill Clinton famously said, "I did not have sexual relations with that woman." Liars often unconsciously distance themselves from their subject, and they use language as a way to do it. Or you might remember the Scott Peterson case or the Susan Smith case. Both instances where both both of them had committed a terrible crime, but they had denied it and they went public. But I mean, in Scott Peterson's case, he said he was looking for his lost wife who it turns out he had killed, and in Susan Smith's case she was looking for her kids, who she had also killed, oftentimes somebody will use the wrong tense unconsciously. And in both of those cases they used past tense because they knew that those subjects were dead. And so, you know, you pay attention. Did someone use inappropriate tense? Did they pepper their account with a little bit too much detail in order to appear authentic? Did they use what we call qualifying language? You know, to tell you the truth, in all honesty, let me think honestly. Well, to tell you, you know, when they they pepper their account with all this kind of bolstering language and qualifying language, it can be associated with deception. It's not proof of deception, but it can be associated with it.
0: Right, because people will say those things when they haven't done anything wrong. They'll say, honestly, I don't know. Or, you know, to tell you the truth, green's my favorite color. It doesn't mean I'm lying.
1: It doesn't mean you're lying. Now what we do know is that you want to get someone's baseline. Like if someone always says the words to tell you the truth and they say that it doesn't mean anything because that's their norm. Or if someone's always tapping their foot and you ask them a hard question and they start tapping their foot, it doesn't mean anything. That's just their norm. So we we do get a good, reliable reference point for measuring changes later, because when you do ask questions, what you're trying to figure out is which questions produce the highest volume of deceptive indicators. That's how you can figure it out.
0: I'm speaking with Pamela Myers. She is a leading expert on deception. She has a great TED Talk uh, online about this, and she's author of a book called Lie Spotting. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do, and I bet it can be hard work. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowners' or renters' insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. So, Pamela, has it ever happened to you, or you know of any case, where all the indicators are somebody is lying, and they're just wrong? They're just, the person wasn't lying, even though all these red flags are going off?
1: And that's why you have to be really careful and you have to back it all up with facts and you have to throw people a bit with questions they weren't prepared for. Oftentimes you'll have someone who's very conditioned, because it's like a conditioned witness. They're very conditioned to telling you the same story over and over again. They're extraordinarily rehearsed. They're slick. They're extroverted in some way. And you you may have to really throw them off with a question they didn't expect in order to get them to give you an authentic response. And so we often do have people who are either too slick or people who throw off all kinds of indicators because they're anxious or someone's dying in their family or they have indigestion or they're medicated in some way. There are lots of reasons why someone could throw off, particularly on the nonverbal side, an image or a patina of being deceptive when, in fact, it has nothing to do with the conversation you're having. So you really have to catch yourself on those instances. People make mistakes all the time.
0: Is it your experience that people who lie lie a lot? Or everybody's going to lie sometimes? Uh, I mean, are there people who you can really categorize as just chronic liars? And, uh, and how often do they show up? Or this is everybody?
1: We don't have science to know. I mean, we, we, there's a lot of science around who the super pathological liars are out there. We know that's a very small part of the population, and oftentimes you actually can detect them as well. For those of us that are in the middle uh we don 't you know we know that the average liar can lie anywhere from ten to twenty times in a day, and those lies can range from low to high stakes, and oftentimes they are for very valid motives uh, but we don 't know exactly what the frequency is there 's no science particularly around that, but people do lie you know men and women lie for different reasons men lie more to protect their image you know they 'll lie about how much money they made or what their job title was or Uh, you know, kind of how they look in in other people's eyes. Women tend to lie more for avoiding punishment or making a good impression, protecting someone else from harm, omitting information, maintaining someone's privacy, getting out of an awkward social situation. So we lie with equal frequency, but for somewhat different reasons. And oftentimes I think it's incumbent on the person trying to get to the truth to have a fairly... uh, forgiving view of the person across the table from them to understand that lying is complicated. It's a big deal to accuse someone of being a liar. There's a very, very messy middle. And the kernels of truth that oftentimes emerge in between what may sound like lies are often more interesting and more valuable than the fact that somebody fabricated along the way. So although I don't, I'm not a big apologist for those who lie, and I think we need to live in a more transparent and a more honest world, we also have to be realistic in viewing people as human beings who have complex impulses and complex reasons for why they do what they do.
0: What are some of the things, or one of the things, or a couple of the things about this whole topic that, that particularly fascinates you, that, that surprised you in, in the researcher? something about this whole thing that's like, wow,
1: One of the things that I find very interesting in the field of deception detection is undergoing rapid disruption. So, For example, while the polygraph used to be the tool of the day to surface technologically whether or not somebody was being deceptive, now with AI and biometrics and machine learning, facial recognition, we're seeing the entire field being disrupted by a more advanced form of technology. So I sit, for example, on the advisory board of a company called Converis, which is really, I think, the most advanced in this field. And what they're doing is they're using ocular measurements on a a computer that someone looks through in, in a sort of eye tracker connect to a computer. And that machine, they call it eye detect, can detect with enormous accuracy whether or not someone's being deceptive. And it's not biased. You know, you don't have... For example, like you do oftentimes with a polygraph examiner, someone across the table on the fly just making up questions who can change them according to, for example, the color of the skin of the person across the table from them. computer doesn't know the color of someone's skin. They only know biometrics and measurements, and in this case, you know, 75,000-some measurements that can be rapidly calculated in an algorithm. So I, I think this is really where the field of deception is going, and it is under rapid disruption now. And... While the human side remains unbelievably fascinating, I think we are going to see a world where the human side of interrogation and the human side of deception detection is going to blend in an almost seamless way with the machine learning side, and we're going to see a whole new form of probably truth emerge.
0: I think there are a lot of people, and I put myself in this group, I guess, who believe that we're pretty good at telling when somebody's lying. I'm pretty good at spotting... I think I'm pretty good at spotting a liar. My mother was really good at spotting a liar. Are some people just better programmed to notice deception?
1: Some people are much better than others. We know that uh, people who are high self-monitors, who have a better sense of the way they present themselves to the world, tend to also be better at detecting lies. There's also data that shows that we're only about 54% accurate unless we go through training. Because if you think about it, it's not like tennis. You know, like when you hit a ball, the tennis—you know—you'd serve the ball. The tennis ball goes out. That's instant feedback. You can adjust your behavior immediately, and the second ball will go in. With lying, evolutionarily, if you think about it, as as a species, we don't find out if someone lied sometimes ever. Or sometimes for many, many years later, so we don't have a view on someone's behavior and that instant feedback, that learning curve to go up the minute someone lies. So we think we're better than we are often. Sometimes There's some data that shows that the more confident you are in your deception detection ability, the worse you are at it.
0: Is there any one thing that, because uh, it's, it and it sounds like there is not, but is there any one thing that if you're trying to tell if somebody's lying that, 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 although maybe not foolproof, is a pretty good indicator that you can kind of do on the fly.
1: If someone's words and their body language and the message that they're conveying are not in sync, those three channels, they're sending you content, they're giving you words, and as well, they're giving you body language, oftentimes that can be the indicator that there's red flags all over the place and there's something being omitted or you don't have the whole story. If someone also kind of unconsciously lowers their voice, slumps into their chair, tries to kind of unconsciously get out as quickly as possible, shifts around. Those are pretty good indicators. That doesn't mean someone's necessarily lying. It can be a stress response. But when you start to see that kind of behavior where someone really kind of unconsciously just wants to get out of town, that's a good indicator that you're probably on the right track of questioning.
0: And what are some other indicators of deception?
1: Indicators of deceit. I mean, Somebody may, you know, on the, on the verbal side, when you ask somebody a hard question, they may look down, slump, lower their voice. You may see grooming gestures like dusting lint off the shoulders, twirling, twirling their hair, uh, postural changes, changes in vocal tone, a sense that they're trying to just leave in some way. And then on the, on the verbal side, you may see somebody deflect. They may change the subject altogether. They may question the question. They may give you a lot of qualifying knowledge you know to tell you the truth and all honesty. They may protest. They may say, oh, but that's a ridiculous question to ask. Oh, but I'm a religious person. I would never do that. They may protest the entire, the entire process of asking them questions. Or they may minimize, oh, it was no big deal. You know, We didn't really have layoffs. We only laid off Five thousand people. You know, so when you see somebody minimizing, protesting, detouring, throwing up what we call that distancing language, lots of qualifying language, lapsing into what I described as that kind of convincing behavior, oftentimes it can be, sig- signifier of deceit. Not necessarily proof. You got to be really careful, but it can be a signifier.
0: Well, I can imagine people are very careful not to lie to you, because they don't, because they don't want to get caught. Pamela Myers has been my guest. She is one of the leading experts on deception. She has a great TED Talk online, and there's a link to the TED Talk in the show notes. And she's also author of the book, Lie Spotting, and there's a link to that as well. Thanks, Pamela.
1: Well, you're a fantastic question. That was super fun.
0: As we age, you can start to see it in your face and feel it in your bones. There are creams that claim they'll give you younger skin and energy shots that'll give youthful energy. Let's look deeper between the surface on how we counteract the effects of aging. True niogen helps us age better by supporting the energy-generating engines that exist in our bodies, helping us restore youthful energy. Tiny repair enzymes work deep in your cells to help you recover from lifestyle routines that are hard on the body, including sleep deprivation, or an intense workout, or poor diet. True Niagen supports these enzymes. True Niagen is safety tested, and it's backed by Nobel Prize winning scientists. Age smarter with True Niagen. Right now, new customers can save $20 on a 3-month supply by going to TrueNiogen.com and entering promo code SOMETHING at checkout. Go to T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N com and enter the promo code SOMETHING at checkout to save $20 on your first three-month supply. TrueNiagen.com, promo code SOMETHING. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The world is getting louder. It's been getting louder for some time, and that's not really good news for you. Noise takes a toll on you, even though you often don't even realize it. It takes a physical toll and a psychological toll, and it does so in some very interesting ways above and beyond potential hearing loss. To help you understand the role noise plays in your life and how to manage it is Matthias Basner. He's an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, and he is an expert on how noise affects sleep and health. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for having me. So let's just start by explaining why I and everybody else should be concerned with noise.
2: Most people are, I believe, aware uh, that if you expose yourself to uh, uh, noise levels that are too high, uh, for example, you go to a concert or you're in a bar or in the workplace uh, for that matter, uh, that that can be damaging to your hearing and that the consequence can be noise-induced hearing loss. So, when, you know, whenever you come home from a concert or a bar and you have that ringing in your ears, at that point, you basically know that you have done damage to your auditory system. And that damage, as we know now, is likely permanent. The problem with that is that, you know, the ringing will go away uh, and uh, so we say you typically get a what we call a temporary threshold shift so your hearing may be impaired for a short while but then everything will be back to normal so it's very hard to uh, you know extrapolate that you know what's going to happen to the uh, to your auditory system in the long run if you do that over and over again uh, and you know we as humans are particularly bad in basically associating what we do today to ourselves and what that may mean in the long run. And, you know, in the end, we will pay a price for that.
0: So you said that if you go to a concert and you come out with your ears ringing, that you've done damage and it's likely permanent. But you also said that there's this threshold shift and then things go back to normal. So then it isn't permanent. So reconcile that for me.
2: The thing is, you have done permanent damage to your hearing, but you don't notice it right away. Or there is like there's enough capacity, you know, in your system that it doesn't matter at the time. But you've 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 set a first damage, and then if you just keep accumulating these damages, you know, at a later age when your hearing is deteriorating anyway, then you will notice. But I mean, just what's happening physiologically? They are like. Uh, um, nerve cells in your inner ear, and basically, if you expose them to extreme noise levels, they are degenerating, and they're basically just dying off. And that's nothing, you know, once they're dead, they, they won't regenerate. So, obviously, if you if you start from a level where you have a lot of these, if you lose a few, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter at the time, but if you keep doing that, uh, and then if you... Um, at the um, agent induced degeneration of these cells anyway, then y- you notice the problem.
0: And so noise damage is cumulative. The more, the more you do it, the worse it gets. Absolutely. But the effects of noise are not just related to hearing loss. They affect other things. There are psychological effects to being bombarded by noise all the time.
2: You know, we believe that what is behind many of these effects, and we're talking about, I mean, noise obviously affects communication. It may uh, impair academic performance in school children. It definitely uh, disturbs sleep. It very likely is uh, a reason for uh, an increased likelihood of cardiovascular disease, like high blood pressure, higher incidence of heart attacks. And there's other disease outcomes that people have started looking at, uh, like diabetes or obesity uh, that could be linked to noise exposure. And we believe that at the v- very beginning of this is base- basically a general stress response. So, you know, experiencing the noise at the time is, is interfering with, with an intended activity. It is annoying the person and the person feels stressed and uh, that translates into physiological reactions of the body. Uh, The body is treating uh, stress hormones like adrenaline, like cortisol, that all have physiologic consequences. For example, the uh, composition of our blood is changing, the structure of our blood vessels is changing, there's an inflammatory response, and all these consequences of this general stress response translate if they're chronic and if the noise levels are relevant they translate into manifest diseases but this stress response does not only depend on the sound pressure level but it depends on the circumstances and this is why my boilerplate example for for this is a rock concert if you're attending the rock concert and you're standing in the first row, and it's like 100 decibels, it's not noise to these people, because they actually like the band, they paid $100 for the ticket, uh, and to them, it's like it's music in their ears, so to say, so they don't perceive it as noise. In, in contrast to that, think about somebody who's living you know, three blocks away from the concert hall, trying to sleep, still perceiving uh, uh, the music from the concert hall, and although the noise levels are much lower, this is noise... Uh, to that subject because it's interfering with that intended activity of going to sleep and it's a, it's stress in, in that situation. So although, you know, the sound pressure levels are much lower, in one situation it's perceived as uh, stressful, in the other one, uh, one it's
0: not. So noise is in the eye or 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 the ear of the beholder. But the person who lives near the train tracks, so the person who lives near the airport, doesn't time help to... Fix the problem. In other words, if you live near train tracks and you're hearing trains all the time and you have to sleep, at some point you get used to that so that you can sleep. And maybe even get to the point where you become so used to the sound of the train going by that you can't sleep without it.
2: Yeah, so there is certainly what we call habituation, that is people uh, who move into an area that is noisy and they haven't been exposed to noise. There's certainly some degree of habituation. We actually... We're able to show this in our uh, laboratory and field studies on the effects of aircraft noise on sleep. If you put people in the lab for the first night, you expose them to aircraft noise, they wake up with a much higher probability. And then you see across the study nights, they start to respond with a lower probability. And that is biologically very plausible because what uh, during sleep, um, our auditory system is extremely important during sleep because as you can imagine when we're sleeping we're unaware we're basically unconscious we're unaware of ourselves and our surroundings uh, so we are a very easy prey i mean from an evolutionary perspective it's not that important today but these systems of course still work as as they uh, uh, evolved so the auditory system plays a critical role in that it has a watchman function and is actually monitoring uh, our environment constantly for threats. And uh, so, you know, if you put somebody in the laboratory that doesn't have aircraft noise at home, and then you play back aircraft noise, that's a novel stimulus. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it makes sense that that s- subject wakes up with a very high probability, just making sure that this is not a real danger. This is also why the habituation makes sense, because, it uh, you know, it's always, whenever you wake up, You know, you're like basically wasting energy, you're disrupting that sleep uh, process that needs to be continuous to be uh, recuperative. So, you know, once you have woken up a couple of times to to these types of noises, and you have established that that this is no real danger, then it wouldn't make sense to... To keep waking up with that same probability. So we see habituation across nights in the laboratory, and then you know when we go to to people in the field, like basically measure their sleep in their homes after they've been living, uh, for example, at an airport or the rail uh, railway uh, for for a number of years. Uh, we see that their reaction probabilities are much lower than what we observed uh, in the people in the lab.
0: What about individual differences? I, I think of myself as somebody who really is irritated by, <laughs> by noise. I don't like extraneous noise. I particularly don't like it when I'm trying to talk to and listen to somebody and, and I can't hear them because of all the the noise. That drives me crazy, but other people seem to handle it much much better than I do. So, so there are individual differences uh, in how we perceive noise.
2: Well, there are huge inter-individual uh, differences in uh, how people perceive noise, how they are affected by noise. Again, you know, we actually published a paper a couple of years ago specifically for sleep, um, because if you expose people for a number of nights, they will basically there will be huge differences between the different people, but people will, will react very consistently themselves. Um, so and that, that almost suggests that it's, it's like uh, some of that is, is determined genetically. But yeah, there are, there are huge differences. Uh, we don't have a good explanation for uh, you know what is contributing to these differences, what is explaining these differences. Is there anything we could do to make somebody who is very noise sensitive, to make that subject less noise sensitive? Uh, one thing I, I, I want to say, though, is that and this, this is again sleep, that we actually showed in our studies on the effects of aircraft noise on sleep. That uh, subjects who had said before they entered the study that they were, you know, strongly annoyed by noise, that they also woke up with a higher probability in in our studies. Um, so. Obviously, we don't know what is the hen and what is the egg. Are they, you know, were they more annoyed to begin with because they were light sleepers? Or are they actually waking up with a higher probability because they are so annoyed? And kind of both make sense because our auditory system is not only evaluating sound pressure levels during sleep, but it's also doing a content analysis. There were studies as early as in the 1960s where researchers played back just names while people were sleeping, and the uh, subjects would wake up with a much higher probability when it was their own name or the name of a loved one that was played back. So that tells you, you know, there's a content analysis going on, and the, uh, the brain is, is making a decision, is this content, is it worth waking, you know, the, uh, the subject up or not?
0: What about when it when it comes to noise and whether or not it bothers you? Is how predictable the noise is, and and maybe how much control you have over that noise? Does that have an influence? Does that mitigate how upset or concerned or cr- cranky you get when the noise happens?
2: Uh, one example in the in the aircraft noise world is that at Frankfurt Airport uh, they introduced something like dedicated runway operations. So they would tell people up front, you know, on Thursday, November 22nd or whatever, we will not fly over your area. So uh, people can, you know, plan if they want to do a barbecue outside. They can actually plan for that. And it it gives them uh, some control back over this noise situation. And that can be very helpful.
0: What does the science say about white noise? Because I know a lot of people, my w- my wife included, likes to play low-level white noise. She, she plays a thing of crashing waves. It's pretty constant. And she does that because she's a pretty light sleeper and any intermittent noise is likely going to wake her up. So that low level of constant noise masks the intermittent noise so she doesn't hear it. But what about the effects of the white noise? Can you pretty much get used to anything and that becomes okay,
2: right? And you know that that is the uh, the idea behind these white noise white noise machines. That if you have like intermittent noise intruding into your bedroom, a bedroom that you mask uh, these intermittent noise events, and then, you know it, it makes good sense. However, we actually uh, looked into this, and we're in the the process of preparing a systematic review uh, of all of the studies that looked into uh, white noise and how it, you know, promotes sleep or affects sleep. And I mean, first of all, there's not a lot of research out there and the research that is out there is not very high quality. So, I mean, my conclusion at this point would be, I could not tell you uh, whether it works, whether it may be even harmful. It, it may work for some people. Uh, it, it may not work for others. Uh, I mean, obviously, we already talked about it a little bit. Um, The auditory system also needs to wind down. And, you know, the best time for the auditory system to wind down is the night. So if you're you're introducing another noise source uh, into your bedroom and, you know, some of these uh, uh, sound machines can be pretty loud, you're basically preventing your auditory system from doing that right? Also, I mean, the the white noise itself could be disrupting to your sleep. Again, there's so little research out there that I couldn't say right now if that's the truth or not, and if it applies to all people or not. But at least, you know, I myself at this point would not feel comfortable to give a boilerplate suggestion that, you know, yeah, people who have intermittent noise should do that, or they shouldn't do that. I simply don't know at this time.
0: Well, it is interesting, too, that that there are reports of people who who do sleep in noisy environments and manage to get used to it and then they go out to the country and they can't sleep because it's too quiet. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, we had these stories too when we were looking uh, on the effects of railway noise in people's homes and there was uh, one subject who said, you know, typically there's a 5 a.m. train and then one morning that train wasn't coming and the subject woke up because you know something was different, right? It, it yeah, it just tells you we we're, we are getting used Uh, to some degree, to the noise exposure. It does not mean that the noise isn't harmful for us, though. Right, right. right. I mean, whatever we perceive subjectively, it doesn't mean that at that point it's it's unproblematic. It doesn't matter anymore. It just means, you know, yes, we've uh, kind of gotten used to it.
0: So let's flip things around a little bit here. So you've been talking about the negative effects of noise. Are there positive effects... Of subjecting yourself to silence is going in a room and uh, and just having it be quiet good for you in the opposite way that subjecting yourself to noise is bad for you.
2: There, there may be research out there. I have to say, I've I've uh, I've done most of my research on the dark side of the force, <laughs> so to say, right. like uh, investigating what's happening if you if you're exposing yourself. But you say
0: say in your TED Talk, that your prescription, or one of them, is to find places and times when you you can be surrounded by silence.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But that's just the inverse of the findings that we uh, have in the sense that exposing yourself to noise is a stress response, it's a chronic stress response. So trying to get out of that vicious cycle of of continuously exposing uh, yourself to the noise uh, makes a lot of sense. And... uh, in in the TED talk, I give that example, and that is very much in line with what we just discussed, right? We are habituating. Right. Uh, we're kind we're kind of getting used to the noise exposure. It doesn't mean that it's that it's good for us. So when I when I uh, attended a, a noise conference a couple of years ago in Japan, it was in Nara, which is like this World Heritage site. It's super quiet. And, you know, I was there. Everything was fine. I didn't really notice, notice that it wasn't, you know, much, much less noisy. I, I did notice, though, that, that Tokyo, you know, I, I was in Tokyo for two days, uh, that that was much less noisy than the, than the big cities I was used to from, from Europe and the United States. But uh, regardless, you know, when I, I was there for a week and I came back and, and basically entered uh, Los Angeles airport and really this wall of sound hit me. Um, and only then did I realize, oh, my God, this is how, how loud this is, right? It's just the contrast between uh, not being exposed for a long period of time time, and then being re-exposed to something I had gotten used to. Um, and I, I believe that tells you how important it is to, you know, seek out the, these quiet places. And, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, on your weekends or if you're doing a vacation trying to somewhat evade the everyday noise and, and trying to allow our, our physiologic systems to, to wind down somewhat. Well,
0: it certainly seems that the world is getting louder and it makes you wonder, like, you know, how loud will things get? Will they continue to get louder and will we just continue to have to adjust to that and wonder, you know, what the effects of that are? Matthias Basner has been my guest. He is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on how noise affects sleep and health. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, Professor.
2: Oh, great. Thank you so much.
0: Are you legally obligated to buy something that you break in a store? Not necessarily, even if the store has a sign that says so. There's no statute on the books declaring that if you break it, you buy it anywhere in the United States. When a store displays a sign with that rule, it's considered a unilateral contract. That's a contract proposed by one party, but not necessarily agreed on by the other party. That would be you. If you've broken something while shopping, there are a few things you would need to consider before you would have to pay. First of all, the store can't hold you hostage and make you pay before you leave. It's a civil matter. They would have to sue you in court unless you want to voluntarily pay for what you broke. Did you act negligently? If you were juggling the fine china, well, (laughs) a court might likely hold you liable for those damages. But if the store did not take reasonable steps to prevent breakage of something of value, you might be off the hook. If you are found at fault for the breakage, you would most likely be responsible for the wholesale, not the retail price of the item. And that is Something You Should Know. We release three new episodes every week, and to make sure you don't miss a single one, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It's free, and then the episodes are delivered right to you. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.